Hey everyone, this is Dr. Tran co-hosting with uh, MalwareTech. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about quite a number of various to uh, InfoSec topics, everything from uh, an update on, on the Twitter hack to other ransomware attacks to, to Emotet, and I'm sure there'll be other random things that, that we come up with as well. So joining us uh, today, we actually have two guests. Uh, we have uh, Gabsmash, who's returning um, from, from episode number number two. Yeah, I couldn't stay away, and I still don't have a CVE. <laughs> uh, and then also, um, you know, a, a second guest is joining us uh, uh, from from north of the border, uh, Miracle Worker. Hey, yeah, it's, uh, I'm happy to join you too. It's been a while, uh, especially out of like a PUBG environment. It's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so malware tech. Um, I think in the news, there's been an update on, on, on the Twitter hack. Uh, I mean, what's kind of going on there? I didn't get a chance to really read up on it, but um, what's, what's, what's happening? Uh, so um, this morning, there was a news article out of Florida, of course. Florida man? <laughs> Florida, Florida teenager this time, it's actually. Florida man. Florida teenager is behind the Twitter hack. Um, they call him the mastermind behind the Twitter hack. So to me, that suggests he is the... The person who wasn't identified previously by, uh, I think Brian Krebs did an expose where he actually named most of the people involved in the Twitter hack. And then there was this uh, like seed anonymous guy called Kirk and no one really knew anything about him. And he was deemed to be the mastermind behind the whole attack. So it is quite possible the person who was picked up was the Kirk in question. Hmm. Did you guys look yeah. at his mugshot? Because he looks like <laughs> Edward Cullen from Twilight. <laughs> oh, man. He's, he's the oldest looking teenager I've ever seen. I know. Creepy he is, eyes. He is serving some shade to the camera. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll I, I guess to... maybe we'll, we'll, over, uh, we'll put an overlay so people can see what we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he's just like pretending to be a teenager so he doesn't get charged as an adult. Yeah. I mean, even to call him a mastermind with the with the amount of power he had at his fingertips and the dumb shit he did, like there's nothing yeah. smart about it. <laughs> supposedly they um I didn't I didn't get a chance to read how they actually got caught, but supposedly they were discussing over Discord with their with their uh like not using VPNs or proxies or anything. <laughs> and I did hear a rumor that they actually used like uh, real Coinbase accounts where, and of course to go on Coinbase, you have to do a, a know your customer uh, submission where you have to submit proof of identity, which is fairly hard to fake. Wow. So pretty much just really, really poor OPSEC. It's like, it always is. It's like Dread Pirate Roberts all over again. I mean, that guy lasted a lot longer than they did. <laughs> or, or that <laughs> they hush made puppy guy, that hush puppy guy we talked about last episode, oh, where he basically had in his Gmail he had pictures of his passport and his visas stored in there, so they were able to get it. I just, I still have so many questions about that one. Yeah, I mean, like th these guys made it what, like a uh, a week? If that, yeah. I mean, well, it was so high public, profile. It was public in a week, but. Jeez. Yeah, I mean, sounds they, like they were they caught were right know. away. Yeah, yeah. Rolex and Chewan. Yeah, holy. Was there any more detail about the you know what they did exactly? Uh, I mean, I, I think the initial reports was social engineering of an admin who had the tool, but I don't know if there's been any more information on that. Yeah, so um, Twitter had released a statement, I believe, yesterday that um, they fished a Twitter employee who did not have admin access. And then they were able to use the information they gathered from this Twitter employee 
to get an understanding of like Twitter's internal environment, like who knows who, uh, like what they needed to get access to. And then they used the information gained from the first employee to then fish another employee who did have access. So like social engineering to the best. Yeah. As far as like fishing goes, this is fairly sophisticated. Like it's, it's obviously not nation state. It was teenagers. But this wasn't just a put up a password page, someone types their password and you're in. They actually had to go through multiple layers, which is quite interesting. What's interesting to me is that it's, you know, the social engineering aspect is it's not technical. It, even though you say it's multiple layers, it's just, you know, pretending to be one employee asking another for something. It's, it's, it's interesting in that sense, I think. Uh, it's like, we, we, I guess we class it as hacking, but it's, it's really not. It's just uh sophisticated lying essentially <laughs> yeah over 100k right yeah i mean the fact that they, they i mean in a way they're just pivoting from one person to another it's in, in a way it's privilege escalation for, but just at the human level between people <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean when when we say sophisticated though, this is actually what a lot of the nation states do they do the same kind of thing they're not using zero days well they, they do use zero days sometimes but often they are just fishing a guy who knows a guy and then just working their way up until they get to who they need so it's for me it's interesting i thought it was a lot less sophisticated than it actually turned out to be i thought they had just gotten the the admin panel password off the bat i didn't realize they had pivoted through multiple layers which is kind of interesting but yeah they uh I don't remember what the, the, the end price was, but it was it was a hundred K I last last I looked. I think maybe they got up to two hundred or two eighty or something. But it was it was not a lot of money. Yeah, I saw I saw a hundred sorry. Oh, I was just gonna say last I saw was 127k and and that was initially from the the first few tweets that had targeted like um Bitcoin uh professionals as you would say on twitter and like that's where they got their most money and then as soon as like kanye showed up people are just like wait a minute <laughs> <laughs> i saw a really funny tweet is um the, the scam was uh i'm giving back to the community followed by the uh, uh send your bitcoin to me and i'll double it and someone tweeted um i knew it was a scam when jeff bezos said he was giving back to the community <laughs> wow <laughs> burn ouch well, I, I also heard that it would have been more, a lot more if they didn't freeze that wallet, essentially. Yeah, so they didn't freeze the wallet. Uh, we still don't know where the wallet uh, was actually hosted. They haven't said that. But um, uh, a lot of Bitcoin users use Coinbase to store their money. So what Coinbase had done is they had blocked transactions out from their users to uh, the attacker's Bitcoin wallet. And because so many people were using Coinbase, they say they actually managed to drop about I think 400k yeah. worth of transactions, which is pretty impressive. And it also kind of shows how everyone says Bitcoin is this decentralized, uncontrolled currency. But Coinbase own like probably 50% of all of the Bitcoin wallets in active use. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, in a way, the the major players can create their own regulations and, and controls in place. So, um, I mean, the benefit is it's easy to use, but... The alternative, I mean, but the flip side is they can put whatever controls they want, including know your customer, including if you're a U.S. based person, um, you know, basically they will report it to the IRS. So uh, it kind of takes away from from Bitcoin as well. Um, so it's kind of a middle ground and almost un untested waters because who knows what other controls they may put in place. 
Uh, I think um, a lot of these kind of like Bitcoin libertarians is they kind of allow this stuff to pass because, yeah, uh, it would be ideal to have like a completely unregulated currency, but who's going to use that? And it's like uh, entities like Coinbase bring in so many new users who buy so much Bitcoin and they push the price up so far. It's like, do I want this to be free or do I want to make money? And it's always the money. <laughs> And here Same. we just watch Mauer open his wine. Yeah, don't spill I, it this I time. Thought... Don't spill it this time. <laughs> yeah, don't screw it I'm up. I'm gonna try my best. I thought I uh, didn't put the cork in too tight, but apparently I'm I'm really weak. I like how how you got a second <laughs> bottle that's also <laughs> empty. It's, it's for display. Yeah. <laughs> it's for show. I I like I drink all of the wine in one go, and then I don't drink again for a while. So I have all these bottles in the fridge that are half empty because they like they go sour after a few days. <laughs> So I have just only half empty sour wine left. Oh <laughs> I'm so so bachelor here. What kind of wine is it? What are you drinking over there? It is uh the I think it's Galio Moscato. Oh that's right, you and the Moscato, yes. Yes. Yes, so um Tran, I noticed you're in a new location, as if you didn't tell me this in advance. <laughs> Totally staged uh, response. <laughs> Tell us more, Tran. Yeah, yeah so, where in the world is Dr. Tran? <laughs> yeah, so so today I actually uh, moved. So I was on an airplane for 12, hour, 12 plus hours today and, and a train. So I am now in, in Germany. Um, it is 11.30 at, in the evening now, so it's late. And that's why I have not only my Kura Yoshi 12, but I also have my coffee, uh, and my sparkling water, so I'm 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 good for for a little bit. <laughs> so I, I think that the travel would be something that people are interested in right now because you're kind of one of the few that are doing it. So can you tell us about what the travel was like? Oh yeah, it was very strange, and I almost thought they were not going to let me across the border uh, really? because uh, I showed up and I pull out my American passport and they're like, "Oh, have you talked to the embassy? Are you allowed here?" <laughs> I was like, "Oh crap." So of course I, I do have a visa. Uh, my my visa was issued two weeks ago because um, of, of my job. So I had my visa and the passport. I had a whole stack of documentation with my visa application, my work contract, um, my procura, which is essentially a power of attorney document for my company, my company's branch here in, in Germany, as well as a whole bunch of other things to prove that I'm here legitimately. Um, so I provided all of that and they, and then two other border control agents showed up and started looking through everything. I was like, oh crap, what's going to happen here? Are they going to turn me away? I have to fly back to the U S but ultimately they, they finally saw the visa like, oh, you're good to go. So they let me cross. Uh, the flight wasn't bad. I mean, it was about 50% filled. So, uh, social distancing wasn't that big of an issue. Um, it was a 12 hour flight. So people were not wearing their masks the entire time. Uh, but I, I didn't really have any issue with that. And also when they were deplaning, they basically called out what row, uh, they were deplaning row by row so people wouldn't get bunched up onto the airplane. So I thought that was kind of nice. Uh, but once I was in the airport um, in, in Europe, people did not follow social distancing at all. They Everyone wore a mask, which was, which was good. Uh, and then on the train, it was very similar. Everyone wore a mask but they didn't really practice social distancing. So we'll see um, if I actually caught coronavirus or not. Um, <laughs> when I arrived, wasn't, yeah. 
uh, wasn't the social distancing just like a, a kind of an American idea? Because no. no one would wear a mask. So they were like, well, we have to find some way around this. Because I've noticed in a lot of the European countries, so many people are wearing a mask. They don't bother with the social distancing because why? It is recommended. There are signs everywhere um, suggesting that people stay about two meters away. Uh, so so I, I think it is highly suggested and recommended. I, I don't know if there are specific rules. I didn't see anyone enforcing it. So I'm, I'm not sure. But uh, the nice thing is um, when, when I landed, actually at the airport, they have a um, an express test for coronavirus. So you can actually take it. And then three hours later, they will send you a um, your results that, that you're negative. And, and because I'm negative, I don't need to self quarantine. Is it the back of the nose one that like really hurts? No, it's, it's the R it's the RNA test. So it actually looks for the, um, the, uh, fragments of RNA, I guess in, in, in the swab from the back of your throat. So it's not in uh back of your nose before I traveled. I also took a test in the States, which is the, in, in the nose swab. So that was a little annoying. It was a little weird, but it was a pretty quick test. Um, so, uh, I have two coronavirus tests, one before and after I traveled. So, uh, I think I'm, 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 I'm good to go. It's good to hear. I was thinking about getting uh, the the antibody test because I was sick for a, a long time, but at this point, like it's gone. So uh, I want to. I kind of like Loki. Want to know if that was <laughs> Corona or if I just got like the worst flu of my fucking life. It's worth well, checking out, especially if you're a blood donor. They need antibody blood. I mean, I keep getting calls to donate blood. That's for sure, but. To honest to goodness, I haven't been outside in five months. So <laughs> I think is, uh, is that because of coronavirus or because you live in Canada? I, I, it's coronavirus <laughs> and my lifestyle. It's just like this is heaven. <laughs> I don't have to see anyone. I don't have to be around anyone. This is perfect. And I still get to do my. I mean, yeah, it's that's the life, isn't it? Well, I, I was also reading that the antibodies only last or only are only detectable for about eight weeks after you get the virus. So um, depending on when you were sick, you may not even, the results may not even show positive. Which also can explain why people are getting reinfected. It's really a slippery slope there. Um, I know that's a lot of what's being investigated with some of the potential vaccines out there. They wanna see if it'll help the body to create antibodies or if it'll you know work in another way so that it's a little bit more long-term. Yeah, like I, I don't know if the, like I haven't really gone deep into the research, but my understanding is that antibody levels drop. So they might drop below the detectable level, but the template is still there. So you are still immune, just it's it's less easy to detect that you have antibodies. At least that's my understanding, not a, not a biologist or anything. No, no, that does make sense. But there is a higher reinfection rate compared to a lot of other viruses. And they're still trying to figure out whether it has to do with the antibodies dropping to a certain level or whether the virus just continues to mutate. So like the common cold, which is also a coronavirus. I kind of feel like we're living in the Andromeda strain right now, but um, <laughs> yeah, no. And one of the interesting things too, I shared something on this a week or so ago, but they're actually preliminarily finding that people with the more mild cases are having more severe long-term symptoms and vice versa. Um, yeah, that's really scary. The the after, like the knockoff effect of that, you know, yeah, you got over it, but like your heart's only beating at 75% or something now. It's like, 
Those things well, are scary. Um, one of the big ones is uh, acute anxiety and depression is happening a lot in the people that have milder cases. And the people with milder cases are the same people that are tending to lose their sense of smell. And the way that they're trying to rationalize it is your olfactory neurons are the ones that are actually affected first. And it is causing, you know, the effect in the rest of um, your neurons. So it's actually affecting the brain to some extent, which is a lot scarier than just a flu. That's the part that like really scared me. It's like, <laughs> ultimately, I can get my lungs replaced if I do. <laughs> oh my God. Really. Your lungs replaced? Mr. Moneybag but... over there, <laughs> But like, it's like, you can't replace your brain. Like once it's fucked, that's it. And like that just terrifies me. Like at some point in like the future, every single organ in my body will be replaceable. Like it might cost a lot of money, but like you can recover from heart failure, you can recover from lung failure, kidney failure. But when it comes to like brain damage, like at the minute, that's it. And like just those symptoms terrify me. I mean, tangentially, I mean, that's why I studied it. Hand, right? Yeah. <laughs> we're we're no, not I mean, helping the problem. That was one of my majors in undergrad, though, was neuroscience and. Uh, that was the area I did research in was neurobiology and neuropsychology. And um, I don't know. It was it was always interesting because that's the one organ that we don't know everything about yet. Was the introduction to the classes like, here is everything we know about neuroscience. It's just an empty book. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Um, yeah, it got like weirdly in depth. Some of it was like to the microbiology level, which was kind of crazy. And um there were a lot of classes on like abnormal psych and what drugs do to the brain and stuff like that. So, yeah, you're wicked smart. Like I was watching the last episode and you're just like, oh yeah, you know, I transitioned from one area, <laughs> it was no big deal. And then they asked me to be on the board of directors and then, you know, no, I didn't I'm really not. I just have a short attention span. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I guess speaking of CVEs, Apple has, uh, They've released a new security research device. And uh, so if you didn't know, one of the major, major problems with security research on Apple is their device is a black box. On Windows, you can be like, hey, I want to look at this process. I want to find a bug in, say, Explorer.exe. You open up your debugger, you attach it to Explorer, and then you can see the code. But with Apple, you can't actually run debuggers on the device. You can not get a lot of things off of it. So uh, what researchers were doing was uh, one of two things is they were finding zero day exploits using the exploits to root the devices and then installing the debugger on the device to find new exploits, which is of course like a, a, a catch 22 <laughs> as you need an exploit to find the exploits. And uh, then the other one was they were stealing, well, someone was stealing dev devices from the factory. And then they were, these are devices which you can attach debuggers to and they were stealing them and selling them on the dark net for like hundreds of thousands of dollars, I think. So uh, Apple has now offered a third option, which is we will give you the dev device, but you have to give all of your bugs to us. You can't sell them to anyone else. And uh, we'll give you a bounty if we feel like it. And it's like, like a lot of these people are like, they have no interest in like selling only to Apple because a lot yeah. of uh, bug hunters will uh, they will sell to like governments or to private companies and they will also sell uh, do bug bounties for the lower value ones and just kind of being boxed into this agreement with like you can only give your bugs to apple is like appealing to almost nobody how do they enforce that 
Exactly. It's a, it's a EULA agreement that no one's going to follow through on, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. No. <laughs> My guess is they would probably put some kind of monitoring on the device, which if you turn off, you lose your privilege to having it. Like Apple are not known for being laid off with their licensing agreements. It's like, we will have a man in your house who just watches <laughs> you all day. <laughs> So are are they, I'm just going through the document now, but are they employees of Apple or these are just white hat kind of everyday everyone who's. Yeah. So this is basically for their equivalent of a bug bounty program. These would just be like everyday researchers who want to find bugs on Apple, but you have to have the special Apple patented device and you can only send your bugs to Apple. Seems like a good way to get arrested. She's like, oh, hey, hackers, here's our device. It's definitely not going to track you going forward. <laughs> or, or Apple will just send their goons to, 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 to watch you as well, as you said, or just intimidate you. I mean, they, they are not above um, intimidating reporters in the past. So I would imagine anyone who does anything high profile, they may feel the blunt of that. Well, yeah, they, um, they actually sued a friend of mine. He... Uh... He basically made the equivalent of essentially like uh, QMU or VMware, but for Apple devices. So you could actually fully virtualize an iPhone and that way you could attach a debugger from the hypervisor and then find your bugs that way. And that was an, that was like an alternative to either uh, hacking the device, like a real device or having to buy some weird black market device, which you're a hundred percent going to get sued for at some point. So they made this uh, this VM for iPhone and then Apple came along and they said, well, the iPhone is like our proprietary IP. They therefore emulating an iPhone is a violation of copyright and we're going to sue you for a million, billion, trillion dollars. And uh, like that case is still ongoing in court. And it's like Apple are not, they're not scared to fuck with people. Like they will absolutely sue you into the ground regardless of whether you're a good or bad person. So, so what do you think is going to happen here then? Do you think that people will shy away from trying to find these or you think they're going to continue to go other routes or I don't know? Honestly, I don't know. Cause like one of the main, uh, like motivations for bug hunters is you can sell these bugs to say, uh, brokers who sell them to friendly governments and they use them to hack, uh, terrorists or drug lords or pedophiles or whatever. And these governments everyday pay, like... citizens. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I think so. This something like this is only going to increase the value of these bugs. I mean, the reason why Apple bugs and vulnerabilities are so valuable is because it's harder to do, and not only from a technology standpoint, but they, have, they put so much any restrictions and controls over who can get it that it's just going to increase the value of them over time. Yeah, like I think Apple's intention is like. I, I guess they consider it bad for business that these companies like you have gray keys, which can, it can bypass the encryption on an iPhone. So if you've got a device which is full disk encrypted and it's offline, theoretically, they should not be able to get into it, but with the right exploits, they can. And like Apple kind of, they market their devices, this secure, unbreakable box. So it's kind of bad for PR that companies can do this. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to take control of the vulnerability market and they're going to say, Hey, you cannot sell your vulnerabilities to companies like these. You can only sell them to us. But of course, uh, things are just going to go the other way. 
the users are going to be like, well, I'm not, I'm not entering into this insane agreement where Apple gets to put cameras in my house or something. I'm just going to sell them. I'm just going to do it the old way without the research device. And I'm going to sell them to the government or to brokers. And I think what's going to happen is you're going to have governments with in-house teams who of course don't deal with Apple. Then you're going to have researchers selling to uh, brokers who don't deal with Apple. And then you will have a very small percentage of uh, researchers who don't really know the scene and they don't realize they could get millions of dollars for this bug and are happy to sell it to Apple for half the price. Well, I think that, I mean, maybe Apple's um, objective is they're just trying to increase the number of bugs that get reports them directly instead of through other channels. Because ultimately what you're describing, this is only a benefit. They're just opening up more consumers, I guess, so to speak, to of of uh, of, of being bug hunters for, for Apple. While previously it was very difficult, the barrier of it to entry was so high. It just lowers the barrier of entry a little bit, just enough where... It's not really affect them, but they're going to get more bugs reported now. Yeah, they're kind of building this fortress, though. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, what happens eventually. There's going to be a breaking point at some point on one end or the other. I think they're going to scare away researchers because they're putting all these limits in place and they're suing uh, companies that were used by these same researchers to find bugs. And it's like, who wants to work with the guy who's like that? Well, these limits were already in place. All they're, in a way, they're actually loosening the limits to create more people who will work with them. So I, I think it's not scaring away people. I think it's actually opening up for more people. I, I know it's um, people in the security research community don't like what they're doing. But if I'm Apple, this is great. I'm, I'm basically increasing the number of people who are hunting bugs. And now I'm also funneling more of these bugs to me instead of through other channels. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some of that. But at the same time, you're giving out this device more easily than it would have been in the past, right? So now it's just this this dev device is in the public hands. No control. They're not officially employees. You don't know where this device is going. You don't know if they're signing up simply just to resell it. You know, like you said, if, if prototypes are being stolen on the factory floor... Like now they're just out there everywhere. What's going to stop someone from abusing? Yeah, like I'm going to be interested to see what security controls in place on this device to stop people from reverse engineering and replicating it. Because obviously, like I'm, I'm wondering if it's like some kind of virtual environment where they, it's like a subscription access where they can cut off your access and you don't actually get physical access to the device. Or are they giving out physical devices in which case how are they going to stop them from being reverse engineered or stolen or sold? Yeah, managing physical devices would be a nightmare. I know. <laughs> RFID tags everywhere. It's fine. Dev, dev device <laughs> as a service. I, I like mean, it. That's pretty much what it is. <laughs> it's like DDoS instead of DDoS. <laughs> <laughs> so Gabs, what are you drink? What are you drinking over there? I have a gin and tonic today. I refilled on my liquor because last time the only thing I had was like half a bottle of whiskey. So They're very British and sophisticated. I love gin and tonics, especially in the summer. I, that's all I drank when I was in Vegas for DEF CON last year because it kept me hydrated. Like I was drinking like equal parts water and alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> so like it kind of like evened out, bag. right? <laughs> Miracle, what are you drinking over there? It looked like there was a bottle you're you're Ooh. chugging out of. 
Ooh, I have some delicious soju. Very first time having it. I've heard from all my friends who've traveled to Korea and stuff like soju. It's like a dollar a bottle and it gets you fucked up. I'm just like, oh, okay, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, to be on this show, I'm like, I need something special. So I have soju <laughs> and it's like the most delicious, non-tasting anything that'll get me fucked up. So hopefully. what does it taste like? Well, this one's an apple flavor. So it tastes like apple water and it's awesome. It's really good. Huh. Uh, so I'd recommend it. 12%. Ugh. I'll just see if I can find it. 12% <laughs> steep. One of my favorite beers is 12%. And it's like, you drink one, you're like, oh my God, what am I doing? Yeah. And the problem is, is that there's no, there's no like kick. So there's, it's, it's just going down smooth. and you're just Because like there's so much sugar on. in it. There's so much yeah. sugar. It just masks the alcohol. Uh, I think, yeah, yeah, that's another reason I do like gin and tonics is because, so I use diet tonic water, so like I really don't have any sugar in it, which is awesome because sugar makes me feel like crap the next day. Any drinks with sugar, like I feel horrible. I definitely didn't just smash like a two liter thing of Pepsi before this either. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm worried about healthy stuff. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's not about health. It just makes me feel (laughs) crappy. Like I'll eat things with sugar. I've got Sour Patch Kids right here, but... I don't know alcohol prove it prove it where are they well so i was gonna like i bought the movie package but i kind of like ravaged it (laughs) 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 i didn't mean like i started tearing the end it just kind of like so they're in this little it's the watermelon ones the watermelon ones are the best it's like that meme where the it's like the rage face guy. He's like peeling like a hangnail and it's like, it's okay, it's okay. And he starts peeling part of his finger and it's like the rage face. And that's that, that's the image that popped in my head. And then he, and then there's the next frame where he's just human meat, right? <laughs> oh God, we're not doing this again. <laughs> Let's not go back to that segue. We'll save that for October. <laughs> I can't wait for October. I need to read the YouTube Times of Service again. And, and <laughs> you can always just bleep. No, we don't know what we're talking it about. It would just be one long bleep. It would be just one long bleep, and people can just have to. We'll have to read our lips. Yeah, we'll teach everyone how to read lips. It'll be productive. It'll be the least viewed podcast ever. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> so, so earlier, um, so earlier, it was brought up the topic. I mean, we were joking about CVEs, but I mean, we were talking about how um, you know CVEs and and plus kind of being qualified and getting to the industry. And I, I've noticed generally in, on on Twitter and YouTube, we get a lot of comments and questions about how the heck do you get started and in, in infosec. And I know this is a topic that will garner a lot of differing opinions um, and sometimes controversial opinions. So I, I'm just kind of curious how all of you guys got started in tech or InfoSec and any advice that you guys might have around this topic, how to break into the industry or just how to get into security or te- technology in general. But there's that, there's that meme that's like, go to, go to university for two years, uh, study certs, uh, 10 years, you get like a good salary in InfoSec. And then there's path to get arrested uh, two years <laughs> in jail. And now you're at the same salary. I decided to do both those things at the same time. Productive. I mean, no, I mean, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yes. Okay. Um, I have a story on this kind of, I mean, I'm just super stubborn. So that's kind of what it comes down to. But I was not super happy when I was doing the pharmaceutical stuff like I I enjoyed it but it wasn't what I wanted to do forever I didn't feel challenged and whatever it didn't move fast enough for me I don't know um so I was talking I was the 
person I was dating and living with at the time was a, like, I don't even know what he did. He was an open stack architect or something. And I was like, hey, I think security would be super cool. And he was basically just like, yeah, you can't do that. And I was like, what do you mean? Challenge accepted. And he was like, you can't just go from not being in security to being in security. He's like, you've got like, and it's the view that a lot of people have. You've got your dues to pay. Like you start out at help desk, you know, you start doing network stuff, sysadmin, then you move up and you continue to like take on responsibilities. And eventually once you've done everything, you land in security. And I was like, nah. And fuck fuck you. I'm going to do it my own way. I I hate that mentality. Um, It's the extreme of one end. And I'll talk a little bit about the other end. But yeah, I I feel like it's like your parents are like, back in my day, we had to walk uphill both ways. And it's like they went to the help desk and then they went up and they were help desk manager. And then eventually they got into security. So they think that everyone should suffer through this. And they, those people know there are other paths. They just feel like, well, because I've done this way, everyone else should do it this way. And like, I know plenty of people who they came from, I don't know, uh, straight out of college, jumped straight into a senior, uh, like security position. No, like, uh, no intern, no junior. Immediately you're a senior security researcher at a, a big firm. And like, it's doable. And this idea that you have to work up your way up through like basic IT jobs to then get to basic security jobs and then work your way up there is just insane to me. I think, like you said, that's very much how it used to be. And I think a lot of it is, you know, times are changing, but also like the security, I hate saying this, but the security landscape has changed. Um, You know, it's much more of a thing than it was 20, 30 years ago. And everyone's realizing that security touches pretty much every industry and that there are a lot more and different roles in security than just, you know, pen testing and yeah, that's 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 the thing that really like grinds my gears is everyone <laughs> thinks oh to be in security oh you need to be this lead hack sword i can reverse engineer do pen testing or or uh, the, uh, the the term i love red teaming everyone's like oh i want to be a red teamer i'm like oh my god <laughs> yeah i yeah. mean it's it, it is like this you're saying 20 30 years ago but like the boom has been, you know, huge over the past five, 10 years. Like it, it's, it's very new. It's, it's, it, it went from this obscure kind of like someone in the back room who's not social doing something <laughs> to, holy shit, there's money to be made. And this is a product like this is, this is in tandem with your, your core product. You need to make sure that everything's secure. You need to lock that stuff down and, and everyone's looking for who's qualified to do that. No one knows. It's who. not just about the money, too. I, I think there's a lot of ego at play as well because so many people they see what happens in the movies, they hear about the the stories and in, in, in the media, and they think that's what I want to be. Uh, and 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 that's great that they have ambition uh, and drive, and people should chase that, and they should focus their energy and ambition. But I, I think they also need to be self aware of what it takes to get there, and and. I think everyone should definitely try it, but at the same time, they need to be aware of when do when, there's a certain point where they have to realize that the uh, the barrier to entry they may not be able to hit it. They may not be able to climb over that crest to get to get there. Um, so, so I, I think it sounds a little discouraging, but at the same time, I think people need that self awareness of of where they need to kind of cut their losses because they can waste five to ten years trying to learn it. 
and they they would have wasted those five to ten years focusing on something different where they maybe had a more natural skill or, or ability to, to focus on. Um, and, and I think there is no traditional path for security today, as, as you guys have, have brought up. Uh, I mean, some of the most successful people in, 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 the, in the team that I work with, they had no security. Sometimes someone didn't even have technical background. And now they're some of our highest performers. They're some of our leaders in, in, in the team because it wasn't about the te their technical acumen that got them where they are. It was their ability to learn. It was their ability to have self-awareness of figuring out what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, and working on those things. It was their ability to build relationships and solve problems ultimately that got them where they are. Uh, I mean, examples, one of, our, one of our CISOs for one of our business units, she only got into security, I think, three or four years ago before that, she was an IT project manager for 15 years and kind of got interested in this topic. We saw the potential. We, we provide the mentoring and coaching and she was a very curious mind. So she learned the security on her own and now she's a CISO for a business unit and kind of manages a technical team, non-technical teams. So I think there's a lot of different paths people can take and it doesn't always have to be technical. No, and there's... Yeah. Um... Okay. You know, there's a lot of, I think the difference in the types of people that you're going to find getting into security is going to be super valuable to you. Um, you know, a lot of people ask me, do I feel like I wasted my time getting the degrees that I got because they were psychology and neuroscience and like, you're not using them now. And I'm like, but really, I mean, there is so much psychology in security because you're trying to think how other people are going to think. And um, you know, there's, it's been really interesting, you know, I've been on teams where they're entirely technical people. And then I'm just like, well, what have you thought about it this way? And everyone's just kind of like, well, we didn't think of it that way. And yeah. it's, it's really cool to have the differing perspectives. I mean, that perspective seems, you know, on par, perfect for the idea of preventing the social engineering. You know, it's, it's like you said, how are people thinking? What are people doing? And the hardest thing to protect is stupid people. <laughs> so, you know, Humans you can have, continue to be the weakest link in yeah, security. Yeah, you can have That's everything really in place, but then, you know, somebody who's going to give their password over Slack ruins it. It's like, fuck you, fuck you. <laughs> but yeah, uh, back to what Tran was saying is like, uh, I, I hire my own team and one thing I don't even look for security skills like they're nice it's nice if they can reverse engineer it's nice if they can program but what we're actually looking for is just core researchers it's like can this person research a topic it doesn't matter what the topic is can they research and self-learn and develop so I would look for these types of people who uh, basically showed that they could research any topic and then just uh and just trial and error their way through or just uh, research their way through. So we actually ended up one of, uh, I think my second hire was this guy who he was, he was working in some form of cybersecurity. I'm not sure exactly what, but he wasn't doing really reverse engineering and he wasn't doing any dev. And uh, he showed that he could basically just pick up any new skill he needed by researching it for long enough. So I thought, hey, I, I, I want this guy working for us. And then within like a couple of weeks, he had picked up like programming uh, in like multiple different languages and he was learning reverse engineering. And you kind of get these employees that aren't just, they're not experts in a field, they're an expert at learning. And that's that's generally what I go for is someone who can, it doesn't matter what they can learn, just that they can learn. Yeah, and I think that this idea of having 
various skills in your team is very complementary and it creates a symbiotic relationship within a, a team, a high performing team as well, because you'd be surprised how different disciplines lead to creative problem solving in other areas. Uh, I, I mean, I, I mean, I'll, I'll pick on a really cliche example, Henry Ford. Um, you know, everyone thinks, oh, Henry Ford invented the, the production line. No, he didn't. You know where he got the idea from? A meatpacking plant. So by having different skill sets and experiences from different parts of the world and different disciplines, you bring problem solve, problems that have been solved in different top uh, industries and you apply it to the industry that you're in. So um, I think those who are, who are very focused on, hey, we need to keep the security entry as technical. You need to go through all these things. I think that's horseshit because you really need that creative <laughs> problem solving to really tackle this really complex issue. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm, I think we all are in agreement that there is no technical path is we need as many different skill sets and backgrounds to be successful here. And I, I, and hopefully that's encouraging for people who maybe are intimidated about getting into security, um, because no matter what your background is, you can bring value to, to the team in one way. Yeah. I, you can go ahead. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I want to, I want to get into this, but I'm out of the drink. So I'm going to grab another one, but like, there's a big tandem in between kind of infosec and you guys are all this one area. And like, I went from IT and gaming, that was my thing. But like the similarities between everyone who asks me, how do I get into esports? How do I get into gaming? Uh, it's the exact same. It's, it's huge. No one understands it. You can get screwed by years and not really learn anything you're meant to learn um it's interesting but i'm gonna grab a drink <laughs> i was having that discussion with someone the other day about how a lot of times i think some of the college programs in security they're so new that you're not necessarily learning what you need to learn i've met a lot of people that are haven't gone to college and know a lot more than some of the people that have graduated and i'm not saying that like every situation's like that but i i the one of the reasons that I was drawn to this field too is that it's very much like a you make what you want out of it field um you know in academia you have to have x amount of degrees in order for anyone to consider publishing your work and i i found it so different in this field because suddenly people were just like hey if you know what you're talking about sure whatever so yeah it's like uh my personal experience is like there's a couple of guys i'm actually trying to hire right now and they're like they're young, young, they're like uh, early 20s or even teenagers. And I'm like, I will give you like a six figure salary. Like we need people who can reverse so badly. I don't care if you're still in fucking school. I don't care if you don't have any degrees, any certs. You're good at reverse engineering. We we want you to come work for us. And uh, that's that's kind of what happened to me is I got my job because I had taught myself reverse engineering. I didn't go to school. I didn't get any degrees. Uh, actually kind of fucked up in school a lot um i think we and, all do uh, yeah yeah what school I, I had no certs <laughs> no nothing and then i thought one day like hey i i, I think reverse engineering is kind of cool i'm gonna teach this to myself and i learned how to reverse engineer and the company was like well we need reverse engineers you're hired and i'm like well do you not want to know like my age or what degrees i have and they're like no you're hired and i i think a lot of the industry works that way is there's so few people who can do like there are so many as trans said different skill sets we need and there's so few people so like being able to do even one or two skill sets you're hired it's like it doesn't matter what your degrees are or what education you have 
I mean, I, Trent, you, you could answer this, but, you know, I feel like certainly kind of the most talented and skilled people can get these jobs. It's, it's always a possibility, right? You're smart. We're going to hire you. But um, for a career progression and those sorts of things, do you think that is a barrier that they need to kind of be management, to move up, all those sorts of things? So I think a, 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 the big... I think the biggest issue is really the mindset of organizations that are hiring. I, I think that's the biggest issue. It's not the talent pool, so to speak, because there are so many organizations that focus on the technical skills. They'll focus on, hey, I need someone who can um, you know, get running very quickly. There, there, I mean, realistically, there just aren't enough people out there that can run quickly, but there's enough people out there who can crawl, walk, and then run. And I, I think it's an investment that organizations need to make. And I appreciate and understand that not every organization has that luxury. But if, as an industry, if we really want to solve this um, shortage, uh, skill set shortage, organizations need to invest in, in the coaching and mentoring. Um, and I think the issue as well is we, there aren't a lot of good managers and mentors out there. I mean, I think a lot of managers will just think, that to grow someone junior is just throw them technical problems. There's other things that they need to be coached on as well. How do they interact with others? How do they communicate topics of security? I think that's 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 part that's related to that mindset of hey, we need to get someone you know who can who can start running is because in a way these people are not equipped to manage, mentor, and coach junior people to become professional. So I think it's a big mindset change that needs to be made. So I, I think advice to people who are junior or who are looking to get into the industry is look for an organization who is going to invest in the training, who's going to invest in the mentoring. You might not get, it might not be your dream job on day one, but it's, it's the importance is the opportunity for you to learn and grow and learn those things that you may not even want to learn, but you have to learn to be successful in, in your career down the line. So, uh, I mean, how to look for that is, is organizations that are doing a lot of hiring where they are building up a new program because the nice thing is usually when when a, a, a company is rebuilding their security team or building a new team, um, it's almost like a startup culture within the team. Everyone gets their hands on everything and that's a great opportunity to learn. Um, I mean, that's actually how I got into uh, really security. I mean, I, I had a technical background. I, I was doing information systems. I was a Unix admin. But when I got into security, it was because I joined a company that was building a new security team from scratch. And I had the opportunity to work on a little bit of everything. I literally did like presentations on vulnerability management. I did compliance work. I had to present to the board, et cetera. I did everything. And you learn a lot doing that. It's not as sexy as going into red team directly and straight away, but you learn a lot more. And then you have the opportunity to choose what path you want to go. Yeah. I mean, um, in gaming, Long gone are the days of like the anti-social savant programmer who's, you know, writing everything alone and getting it done. Projects are so big and so large that, you know, no one can do it alone. And, and you know, with the explosion of security in SEC, you need people to run these teams. You need accountants. You need, you know, every sort of pro like any kind of employment to help run these teams because they're big now. So it's like, I'm a part of security, but really I'm the project manager and I've never opened code in my life sort of thing. 
Well, one of the issues I find to come up a lot in security is you have all of these deeply, deeply technical people who can like say find zero days in, in an iOS device and they can remotely hack it with a single click. And they're so deeply technical that they just don't understand the mind of like your average end user. And uh, I see a lot of them giving like really, really bad security advice. Like um, uh, I saw one who was like, uh, I think uh, they were basically recommended that users don't install any security products because they can be hacked. And like, sure they can be hacked, but it's raising the bar. Like they were, they came, kind of come in with this thought process of I can hack it, therefore it's useless. And they don't realize that a lot of these security products, they protect your like the bottom line of users who aren't very technical and they might, they might click a thing or two. They're not worried about nation state zero day attacks. They're worried about, okay, um, one of our employees has opened a, a malicious PDF in an email and uh, thank God the security product caught it. And the idea that that person should not have a security product installed because it could be hacked by some nation state with infinite resources is just crazy that's something actually so i was complaining before we got on air but i had i bought a pc and i'm angry about it because i hate why what come on how could you i hate windows like this, so much like windows this is the linux mastermind no. windows is literally like the five stages of grief for me right like i was i literally i bought like a 200 hundred dollar laptop like the cheapest because i just need it for like two programs i'm like whatever I'm, I'm just tired of dual booting what i have and um so security people oh i know God. well it came oh, today no. and like i was messing with it and it was just like i kept getting like these stupid windows you know security pop-ups and i think as as people in the industry and then technical people you have to remind yourself that these every all this technology that you're using is not designed for you it's designed for the average user so i was sitting there like this is annoying like how do i turn everything off and really just i mean linux. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. i was like can i wipe this and just put linux on here like but the reality is is that for your average person like that windows endpoint protection is gonna be a good thing to have on the machine you know yeah marcus touched on it it's just it's just raising the bar I think we can all agree McAfee's the best security software ever <laughs> uh, in existence. But um, yeah, I mean, anything that stops it's just link is successful. You don't you don't need to be the super hacker, the super anything. If you just spam a thousand people, one person's gonna open it. No, I have an awesome okay. idea for like a security product. I'm gonna like go to people's houses and just smack them before they open attachments. <laughs> I'm gonna market my services. Like, we'll come to you and prevent you from You're opening gonna, these things. That we will come to your house and smack you is gonna get a very different line <laughs> uh, to what you want. Hey, man, money's money. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think also our industry, or at least the hacker community, it glorifies breaking things and doing cool shit and it doesn't glorify solving the problem and i think that's another piece of advice for for people who are pers uh, prospectively looking at this industry is you know to to the people who are doing cool stuff breaking things and doing cool things that is a very elite group and and there's a need for that and not to diminish the work that they do but at the same time the real money is solving the problem which is much harder than breaking things working with organizations, working with products, uh, you know, the companies to solve the problem, 
that's what's going to get you paid because that is a much harder skill set and a rarer skill set because it's not that's not code. You have to understand it. You have to be able to navigate it, but you have to navigate an organization. And, and those are the roles that at the end of the day are the hardest to do and also get paid the most. Yeah, so I'm an architect and that is not, people don't say, oh, I want to grow up and be a security architect. They're like, no, I want to be a hacker. And I mean, even at conferences, you don't, the talks that get all the attention aren't the people that are saying, hey, I figured out how to secure this thing. It's the people that said, hey, look at how I was able to break this thing 50 different ways. And yeah, like you said, it's something to remember and just keep in mind that it's, it is a very select group of people and it's not always going to be the role that you should be in. Maybe, maybe you three can, can tell me, but like um, something in the games industry has been, everyone always has an idea and, and everyone thinks they can make the, make the, the most amazing game because they have the cool idea. But what we were told and what has stuck with me forever is like, yeah, everyone has an idea, but it's the execution. How do you follow through on this? How do you, how do you get it done? Who do you need to do to get this done? Does that exist kind of in your environment? Like, yes. I mean, that's, that's a general concept in the business world. Um, I mean, I'm sure the saying already exists out there, but I I hear this is something that we talk about in our team is a vision without execution is a hallucination. Oh, definitely. I agree. I mean, I had a conversation with my boss like that this week. I had this really cool thing that I had an idea for and he was like, this is super cool, but like it'll be putting it into motion that'll be impressive and i was like huh i get that it makes sense everyone wants to be the idea guy yeah no one no one wants <laughs> i to, mean that's uh, the dream i want to just say like let's do this and then have a team do it for me <laughs> just like, well hey. that's what you do when you're elon musk <laughs> <laughs> and, and we are not him yet i did have so i saw something kind of funny just speaking about the state of affairs in the united states but it since you're in canada you'll find this entertaining (laughs) no it was it was like i bet canada feels like the meth lab over the other like the crazy people's or like they're over the meth lab apartment below them or something like that oh god (laughs) we're we're gonna get america to pay for a wall that's what we're gonna do It was funny. It made me laugh. I was like, oh, yeah, Canada's probably like sweating right now. They're like, oh, God. We, uh, we just, what was it? Um, too many Americans were abusing uh, the fact uh, that they were able to travel through Canada to get to Alaska mm-hmm. uh, during our COVID lockdown. And everyone was doing it, except that they kept stopping in our national parks and like partying and doing all this bullshit. <laughs> so it's like we locked it down. So now there's only like five entrances and we tell them very strictly, Get the, go straight the fuck to Alaska. Don't enter our country. Don't get us all sick, please. Get out of here. <laughs> and they're like, oh, what do you mean? I don't want to do that. <laughs> I don't know what part of Canada you're in, but I just recently moved and I'm like only four hours from Montreal now, which is like one of my favorite cities ever. So I'm just like counting down until I can drive to Montreal again and like Montreal is beautiful. I'm, I'm in Vancouver. Uh, so very and- far. <laughs> Yeah, the other side of the world, essentially. But um, I've been, I've worked out of Montreal for like a couple of months. That's phenomenal. And it's just um, an amazing culture, great people. We're Canadian, so there's lots of pleases and thank you. Uh, the Quebec French. They're also French. Oui, tout le monde parle français. And they're just like pissed 
if you don't even try to speak French, they're just like, American, qu'est-ce que le fuck? Okay. What's, so, so what's maybe maybe switch, switching back to InfoSec, I guess, for, for a minute. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, what's yeah. the next topic, Chad? Like, let's stay on Jeff Bezos. He really needs to, he really needs to come and uh, vacuum my rug. Yeah, let's go down my conspiracy theory hole. Come on. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well let's talk about ransomware, because I think some, some, some things have popped up in the news recently about ransomware. And I know uh, malware tech, uh, you know, ransomware is near and dear to your heart. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's, ransomware has been in news a little bit the last few weeks. I mean, first, first item, the, 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 the situation with Garmin. Um, I mean, about when, the, when this all happened, I just noticed my, my Garmin app just kind of stopped working. I'm like, huh, that's a weird, there's an outage. And I really wasn't paying attention. And all the, the stuff on Twitter started to pop. I'm like, oh, okay, that, that's what happened. So um, I don't know if anyone has more detail than that. I mean, I kind of read the headlines and I just figured... They fixed the problem. Sound like they got they they somehow got the keys. Who knows how? But uh, I don't know if anyone has <laughs> I think more details. Everyone knows how? Is <laughs> yeah, uh, they got hit by Wasted Locker, which is run by a corporation that is uh, appropriately called Evil Corp. <laughs> well, it's not it's not an actual corporation, but it's a cybercrime group that calls themselves Evil Corp. Um, they they're responsible for the Drydex malware, I believe. Um. Uh, a couple of other things they do like a lot of different things but drydex was their main venture and then they started doing targeted ransomware attacks well i say targeted it's more they go through their list of infected systems and they think hey this this would be a good company to pop i've heard that they're not just going off botnets now they're not like going through their botnet and looking at what companies they've already infected and then ransoming them there's uh, some rumor that they are actually now targeting companies like they're spear phishing their way into like a company they specifically want to target and then they're going that route i'm not sure how true that is but uh yeah they've uh they've been going for quite a while now um they tend to get in through either a malware infection that's already in there and they load their uh usually a cobalt strike beacon or something along those lines and then they'll look around the network they'll dump uh they'll dump creds using mimicats uh, and then they'll try and escalate to domain controller. Then once they get domain controller, they will look at like what other servers are on the network. Do they have backups? Uh, where is all their data stored? And then they will just, uh, once they have full access, they'll just ransom everything. And um, uh, usually they try and figure out a fee which will be less than it will cost the company to restore their data, assuming some backups aren't touched. And uh, I think in the Garmin case, it was like somewhere between like one and four million, I remember which uh, they kind of subtly admitted to paying. They they said something along the lines of, uh, we did not pay the hackers directly, which is a very weird way to say we did not pay the hackers. That sounds like, oh, they're... Because uh, Evil Corp is sanctioned by... Corporate uh, speak. Corporate speak. Yes. Uh, Evil Corp is sanctioned by the US government, so um, they can't legally pay them. So we did not directly pay the hackers. To me, sounds like we arranged this through a back channel and they were paid and we got the encryption key, but we did it in a way that isn't violating US sanctions. So why do you think that they chose Garmin? I mean, it's they're clearly targeting specific groups, but why would you think that Garmin would be a good one to go after? So I don't actually know if Garmin was targeted. It could be the... Um, because their main, 
at least up until recently, their main way of getting into companies was they would just spray malware like everywhere. They, you'd have stuff like Emotet, which I guess we'll talk about in a minute because there's some good Emotet news as well. And um, they would just spray out their malware with, with semi-untargeted spam messages, something like you've missed an invoice. Uh, here is here is the invoice you need to pay. And it'd be a, a docx or something that they'd download and open and it had infected macros. And then they would go through all the systems they'd infected and be like, okay, is uh, any of these like S&P 500? What's their market cap? Do they have publicly traded stocks? And they would just try and pick out the higher value companies and then they would uh, they would go from there. Um, as I said, there is uh, some rumor that they're actually targeting companies now and they're trying to spearfish their way into the company rather than spraying malware. But I, I really don't know how true that is yet. I mean, I, I would imagine so, yeah. it's also possible it's opportunistic where they, 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 they got a small foothold into organizations and through reconnaissance, they're like, hey, this is an interesting target. And then they start putting more energy into spear phishing to gain additional access. Um, because I would imagine that that random spraying and if they get a small foothold, they can start to figure out how poor some of the controls are where then they say, hey, the, the controls here are poor enough where we can do more undetected. Well, yeah, because um, another way they're doing it is uh, we talked about this on the last podcast or maybe the one before was the VPN exploits that uh, uh, they keep being published. So they're they're often they're scanning VPN. Well, they're scanning the Internet for vulnerable VPNs and then they're saying, OK, uh, what is this a VPN for? What company is this? And then they're going and looking because VPNs are mostly used by large uh, uh, corporations. So they're going through the list and just seeing what is on there. And then they're going from there. So it's like opportunistic up until a point where it becomes targeted. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was going to agree with Tran on the sense that like, you know, see, see what, what you've gotten in the end from like, who's been, you know, uh, infected and then evaluate basically, you know, who are these people? Are they worth the time and effort? Right. Because every campaign is generally flood everything, see what comes back. And then once you see what comes back, you say, oh, okay, there's money to be made here. Uh, this mom and pop shop is not going to make us anything. So it's like, you know, they evaluate based on that, right? It's not worth going for everyone. Yeah. I mean, there was a time when they did. Uh, ransomware used to just be a thing of you would just infect everyone you infected. You'd push the ransomware out to all of your infections and the uh, fee would be like $300 or something. And then they'd make $300 a pop. And now it's like, we're going to pick this one company out of our millions of infections and we're going to charge them a million dollars or $10 million. And it's just so much less effort to do that one company that pays off big versus your a million victims that some pay, some don't. Now, that this, this just popped in my head. I, I may do some research afterwards. I'm curious if going through Garmin's public financial statements, there's any reference to their cybersecurity insurance policy and what the limits are there. That may influence organizations choosing that amount as well. I think they're doing some public reconnaissance, uh, looking at like financial statements, whether they have cyber insurance or not before picking the ransom, because ultimately you want them to pay the ransom. So uh, I know like they obviously... They look at, because they're inside their network, they've already mapped it out and they look at how long is it going to take to restore this network. And uh, I think it was like Maresco, I don't know how to pronounce it, but there was a company that got hit by NotPetya 
and they i believe did have backups and it took them more than a year to restore their network oh it was the shipping company maersk maersk yeah, yeah that's the one that was a crazy it, story yeah you know insane. these these hackers are that smart and 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 the reason i ask is that you know they're not organizations. They don't have a management structure. They don't have a clear. Ubisoft, oh, some do. of them do. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Some yeah. of them do. Evil Corp is essentially, for all intents and purposes, a corporation. They have management. They have different divisions. They have a. Uh, they have internal GitHub servers and uh, like gyro ticketing. That's they are crazy. run like an actual real uh, like conglomerate. I mean, that's and, good uh, to hear. <laughs> is for it them. though? Good for them. Well, to me, I mean, to you... me, it, it's it's it it puts a twinkle in my eye because this just reinforces that the science of management and and business per, uh, is pervasive regardless of what industry it is, legal or not legal. I mean, yeah. Think about the cartels. Yeah, I mean, without it, is what you get is this Twitter hack bullshit where, like, you know, they could have started a World War Three, but instead they're like, fill my Bitcoin account, please. It lasted, what, Why an did hour? Why make it sound so sexual? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's like, that is the issue is, like, you have so many different skill sets and hackers can hack things, but then they don't know what to do with the thing they hacked. It's like what Tram was saying with Red Team. It's like, hey, look, we can break this thing. And they're like, okay, and what else? It's like, we can break this thing. It's like, okay, but what can you do with that? We can break this thing. And it's like, you have like the Twitter hackers, for instance, who they can break into Twitter, but what do they do next? They don't fucking know. They're like 17 years old. It's like, what do you do with access to the world's biggest, well, the second biggest social media platform? And uh, Lord that's kind of team, where these, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's where these kind of, these structures come in is you will have people who maybe they're not great at hacking, but they know like what to target and what to do with the access. And then they can direct like some kind of, I guess like young grasshopper hackers who can actually go in and hack the things. So I think it is kind of natural that the, uh, the cyber crime industry like slowly consolidates into these mega corporations rather than just random hackers doing like God knows what. So you think it's going to be a trend? You think it's going to continue? Um... Yeah. I think we're going to get to a point where we buy everything from Amazon and all of our cybercrime is done by Evil Corp. It's just like two companies that own the entire earth. And I think it's I think late stage capitalism uh, goes the both ways in both crime and in uh, in just the real world. Is that at some point one entity just owns everything, and we're seeing that happen at this uh, about now. Is you've got I'd say about like five or six major known cybercrime gangs, and they all do business with each other. They're all, and like slowly they're developing deeper and deeper relationships to the point where I guess they're just at some point just going to merge. Mergers and, and acquisitions. Have, yeah. <laughs> okay. And then you're just going to have some big ass cybercrime corporation that controls like 90% of the cybercrime. That's interesting to hear because like the way I've always looked at it is that that infrastructure would only ever exist within a government organization. So it's it's interesting to hear that, you know, some individuals are building this as well completely illegal well, everything that they're doing who, but who knows yeah, these, these organizations there. may have even their own governance structure i mean you just we just don't know enough i mean i would imagine if there's a, a management structure 
there's there has to be an agreement of who has there's a hierarchy there's a governance structure there's probably a way of approving the targets even i mean i i think even in small um organizations there's an there's a kind of like a handshake or gentleman's agreement of how do you operate what yeah. targets do you pick who do you do business with and you're scaling it up into the like almost like a corporate structure so i think it's more like a corporation than than you think it's not complete anarchy that that people may 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 think of yeah and i think gab's gab's touchline is like you know look at traditional crime look at cartels look at organizations there there is a structure it's, it's a lot so bloodier and strange <laughs> but it's crazy i mean they have doctors on staff they have chemists on staff like redoing all this stuff that they have it's crazy like when you start exploring the networks it's just it's insane they're super organized i mean same with the mob yeah i think i think what did i hear the cali cartel had a larger air force than the mexican <laughs> government <laughs> like, that's that. insane and, and, well, I yeah. mean, oh, like uh, if you if you watch like narcos like these people were so powerful that the government bowed to them it was like they they didn't listen to government they they did whatever they wanted and then the government was just kind of allowed to exist and uh i mean like that's something that kind of at this point, they're enabling it is you have certain governments who are okay with cybercrime as long as it doesn't target their own entities. So you have like uh, governments who say don't like the US and they're like, hey, just go target the US. We don't care what you do. So they're allowed to exist and there is no one to put the brakes on that and they can't be extradited. So the FBI can't come for them. And I'm I'm just waiting till one issues like an Ethereum token or something for like to become publicly traded. And they're like, oh, we're we're taking on investors and shareholders now in our in our cybercrime <laughs> corporation. Put in your social security number here. <laughs> <laughs> so segueing from organized crime and and ransomware, um, another topic that I think's been hitting the news a little bit is is Emotet. Uh, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure what it is or how it works exactly. Um, but tech, I, I think you, you've done a little bit of work or have looked into, I mean, what, what the heck is it and how does it work and should people be worried? So Emotet is, um, kind of a crime as a service platform. They essentially, they, the Emotet refers to the malware. That's the name for the, the Trojan. What they will do is they will, they will get Emotet onto a computer they will scrape their entire Outlook inbox and outbox for any emails they've sent or received. They will gather a list of every email address that that person has had contact with. They will uh, gather all of their emails from the uh, inbox. And then what they'll usually do is they will look for emails that you have, uh, uh, where the person has sent an email to you, but you have not yet replied, like an email chain that is awaiting your reply. And then internally in their database, they will form a, a reply to it. And then they will spam out uh, fake replies. So you'll get an email as, that's a reply to from a person you've sent an email to and are waiting on a response from. And it will say something like, uh, here is the payment you requested. And it will be a document. And that document will be more emotet. So it's uh, one of the few malwares that actually say self-sustains to this incredible level where they are just uh, essentially just self-spreading. And then what they will do is they will sell access to other groups like uh, TrickBot and QuackBot. 
And those are the groups that do these big ransomware attacks. They will get loaded onto systems via Emotet and then they will look for good systems to ransomware. And uh, it's been in the news a lot lately because they just returned from vacation. They take yearly vacations. Because um, that's one of the hard things with running a botnet is if you step away from a botnet for like one or a couple of hours, uh, the antivirus starts detecting your payload and it starts removing all your bots. And uh, these things are just so intensive that they just shut the entire thing down and then they take like a month. Well, it's actually, it's been like six months break and um, they just got back from their break and there is a, they've resumed their spam uh, campaign and some vigilante hacker has been hacking their spam links and replacing them with memes. So um, <laughs> one way Emotet actually evades antiviruses is they, uh, rather than uploading the malicious document in the email as an attachment, they send a link and a link is to a hacked site which has the document. And what they'll do is they'll hack new like vulnerable WordPress sites or whatever every day so that these links are not reused. It is a brand new fresh website that has just been hacked hosting this document so that it won't be uh, detected by the AV. And I think what someone has realized is these are vulnerable sites. If the bad guys can hack them, they can hack them. <laughs> so what they're doing is they're getting the, they're getting the spam links. They're replacing the Emotet malicious document with some kind of meme. I've seen like the hacker man gifts <laughs> I've or linked uh, them, various, yeah. yeah. And uh, they will replace the uh, the payload with a funny meme. So when the victim gets the malicious email and they click the link, all they will get is a silly jeer. So they're doing they're is, doing a public service. I love it. I love it. It's I personally find it hilarious, but I also do know that it is like it's getting in the way of a lot of things because there's a lot of people who are researching Emotet, and it's causing problems because it's causing the bad guys to like essentially burn down their infrastructure and start up new stuff. So it's causing disruption on both ends. I find the disrupting the Emotech guys to be hilarious, but disrupting the researchers not so much. I mean, fuck them if they're that slow and like, you know, this infrastructure has existed forever. Like shit or get off the pot sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you described it as kind of like a crime, almost like a, a yeah, like a crime as a service. So so essentially whoever subscribes to it or uses it can put whatever payload they want, such as ransomware or whatever they want technically. Yeah, so they they mostly work. It's not like a publicly advertised service where anyone can buy it. They mostly work very closely with a select few groups. Uh, one of the groups they work with is TrickBot, which of course is uh, is associated with the Riot ransomware. Then you have QuackBot, which is associated with Prolock, but QuackBot also does a lot of bank fraud. So uh, like your main risk from being infected by Emotet is Emotet itself will steal all of your emails and email attachments. But then as well as that, then you will get hit with, potentially get hit with ransomware or bank fraud. So it's like you can, this one malware infection could infect your system with like three or four different malwares and they're all going to screw up your network in some way. So you, so you mentioned that the contacts list um, and, and how they it uses that to send more spam messages. And I would imagine sends more spam messages within the organization. So it's using a, I'm assuming it's using an unverified or unauthorized SMTP server somewhere to do this. It's not leveraging the enterprise's SMTP server. No. So uh, one of the things is that when you use Outlook as a mail client, 
you usually have to put in your SMTP cre uh, credentials from for your organization, and they're stealing those as well. Oh wow! So they're okay. actually yeah. I was um from from like researching this and and discovering it because I'm I'm probably the junior noob of all of you in any sec anything, but um my work process is I get a whole bunch of PDFs and then uh, I discovered that any PDF and then as soon as you click edit to enable or enable to edit uh, was a way to activate any sort of this. So that was kind of scary to me. I didn't actually know that was a thing. Um, well, yeah, that's uh, why they're so successful is you just need to click enable editing and that just seems like a logical thing to click. And then to further their cause, what they will do is they, the PDF or the, usually it's docs, uh, the document will be like a fake error message. Like the entire document is an error message. And it says, uh, this document is encrypted. Uh, to uh, decrypt, click enable editing. And it looks so legitimate that they will click enable editing. And that of course runs the malware. And they're sending these not to home users. They're sending them to like finance departments and internal organization emails where these people just open documents like day in, day out. And they're not gonna think twice before opening the like 850th document today, except this one is malware. So you yeah, there's, there's no uh, do back, like backsies, there's, it's just done. No, no take bags. <laughs> so a question on all this though, like it, a lot of the theme of a lot of these things keeps coming back to humans being the weakest link. And how do you think that we can stay ahead of these with training people not to click things or, you know, do things that are going to harm the environment? I think the, the future of security is to just assume that people are going to do stuff because that's what people do. And it's to try and allow them to do this in a safe way. So like, Sure, training your employees to not click links, it helps. But like you have to be a security researcher. You have to be a malware analyst to understand definitively what link is safe and what isn't. And even in cases, I've gotten phishing emails that were so damn convincing that I was like, wow, I would have fallen for this. And it's like, you can't train all of your employees to be fucking like top tier malware analysts. Yeah. And the the only logical thing to do then is to just say, okay, they're gonna click the document, they're gonna run the malware, now what? And uh, something I've seen Microsoft making is they've made it so that uh, Microsoft Office runs in a sandbox. So when you open a document and you click enable editing, it does run the malware, except it's not giving the malware access to your real machine, it's running it in a virtual machine, which is then destroyed at the end of you closing the document. That's really so smart. It, that's awesome. Yeah, so it's like this idea of like, rather than trying to stop the users infecting the machines, why not think, hey, what happens when they do this? Like, what what do we do once the machine does get infected? Because it will get infected at some point. Well, I think there are some emails, uh, email security tools that, that do that as well, where the, if there is a link or a file, um, the, the system will basically, I, I think the terminology they use is, is explode or execute the, the file and or link yeah, in, in, in a virtual environment before the user even gets to open it and then makes a determination if it's malicious, block the email or stop the link from working. It, it may, it'll actually overwrite the link at times with its own link if, it's, if it can look in the email. So um, I think there are some technologies out there. And then I, I thought Emotet also used 
um, non-corporate SMTP server. So if, if that's the case, I mean, there's obviously ways of allowing your, uh, setting up your organization where if someone's trying to spoof your internal domain, you can configure it to not allow those emails to even show up in, in users' inboxes. Well, I think it's about putting multiple layers of controls, just make it more difficult. And I think ultimately, this is this is another component around security is you can't make your system completely bulletproof. How, but what you can do is put enough gates, put enough controls where someone's tr who's trying to break in, they're going to make enough noise where someone will notice and then they can respond. I think that's the key in thing. Like you want to set it up so that way they can try, but it'll make noise and someone will know see it. I mean, it's like in Home Alone, right? Like he wants to booby trap the house to make a lot of noise so he knows where they are in the house so he can keep himself safe. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Uh, um I did, I did hear, uh, I think Swift on security was discussing this on Twitter. Um, like how, assuming the ransomware actors are in our network, how do we find out? And uh, a lot of suggestions were stuff like, what about bait files? Like ransomware uh, actors, they're nosy. They're going to see uh, companyfinances.txt and be like, ooh. Or they're going to see uh, some, some kind of file that contains privileged information and they're going to open it. So you can actually put bait files on your network that uh, nobody on your network is going to open, but an external actor isn't going to know that. And they're going to they're going to immediately flick on that. It's going to send an alert to the security team. Hey, someone opened the uh, like super magic taxes text. <laughs> and then you can, yeah, you can go back and you can look at what they did. Or, or a spreadsheet, a spreadsheet named password. <laughs> do, I, I, do I you love know? that one. That's Do you one. know of any teams that deploy that kind of security practice where it's like, hey, you know, here's some, uh, what is it called? Honeypots, right? I think a lot of organizations do this, actually. Any any mature organization will do things like that. Yeah, that, that's really cool. But, um, you know, it, it's interesting because I, I went from an environment of extremely internal uh, corporate structure. Emails you were getting were only from anyone who worked within the company to like, now I have 30 or so external partners always emailing me, always asking me for like access and things. And it's just like, you know, brain fatigue. Yes, here you go, here you go. Have that file, <laughs> have this thing, whatever. Just, just stop bugging me, please. And, and you know, how, do, how, do, how does any sec team protect my stupidity for stuff like that? Cause I'm not, you know, I'm not gonna Google their email address. Yeah, and be so, like, Is so there's actually some, um some tech out there, I forget the name of it, but it's, sorry, I'm gonna throw buzzwords out there. Machine learning and AI, I, I said it, I just, I, I said it. Um, there's actually- the Synergize. <laughs> so there's a product that will actually um, run an algorithm to warn you if it thinks you're about to send an email, a file or a link to something to a user that you did not intend to send it. Because it's also very common where you're, you're, you're working with a lot of documents, you have a lot of people you're working with, that you accidentally forward a message or send a file to the wrong person. That's, that actually happens very, very, um, very frequently. So I think there's technology out there as well to look at that, to, to figure out when was the last time you worked on this with this person? What type of files are you working with this person? It has all these, other, all these attributes that it looks at. And then when you click send, it pops in and warns you, oh, by the way, are you sure you really want to send it to this person who may be outside of the organization or you do, you don't you haven't worked with in quite some time? So I think there are some ways people are trying to use these um, technologies to, to solve that problem there. It's not going to get rid of it, but it'll, if it can reduce it by 50%, hey, you just reduce your risk by 50%.
Yeah, I mean, I hope so. I, I it's just uh, like I said, brain fatigue. There's so many freaking people all over the world who need this file or not or access to the one thing. And you just, yeah, whatever, go, go, go. And then, you know, to your point is that like that pop-up for me would work the first five times and then it's, you know, defaulted <laughs> to, yes, yes, yes. It reminds, me, out of my way. It reminds <laughs> me of that, um, of that plugin or app for, for, for Gmail, where if you're out drinking uh, or something, like you have to do like a math problem before it sends the email to prevent you from <laughs> drunk emailing or something. I need to install that ASAP. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> One of the big problems with security is over alerting because there is such thing yes. as alert fatigue. Yep. It's like when you're getting so many security warnings, either it's too many to physically read or there is enough to read, but you're just so used to clicking OK, 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 that you're not paying attention to what it is saying. That's been a lot of the problem in you know, a couple of roles that I've had setting up seam services has been a big one because people are like, you know, what do we log? We should just log everything. And I'm like, you do not. <laughs> you do not want to no, sift through bad everything. Idea. Like you will get, you will just miss so much. So it's, it's a delicate balance, I think, of not logging too much, but logging enough as well. Yeah, you're, you, I mean, your security is only as effective as your end user. And I mean, I'm, I'm more practiced than most, but fuck me. Like there's just too much. They're getting really good. I got a phishing email a couple weeks ago and I seriously sat there and stared at it for a while. And I was like, this is crazy. Like even, you know, when you went to like look through the headers and stuff, it all looked good. And I was like, I don't know. It was so sketchy. I was like, this is crazy. Like if this got sent to someone, like I don't even consider myself that much of an expert so like i can only imagine like if someone sent it to like my grandma or something well they uh the one of the the more convincing ones i saw was like obviously these like websites are getting breached all the time so they can they can get into the database of a website that they know you're signed up on and that your your personal information is in there and they can send you an email as the website and uh like that just gets you to do like pretty much anything. I think I uh, I used to use uh, Bitcoiny, and uh, the database got breached, and they sent like a an email out pretending to be Bitcoiny, like hey um, uh, your coins have been seized. Uh, fill out this form to get them back, and it was a like a document file. And I was like, holy shit! Like this is gonna get a lot of people. Like this is convincing. You know, I saw a job one a couple weeks ago, too, where it was a job posting and it looked legit on the surface. And then you started to read through it and they're asking for people's socials and stuff as they apply for the job, like on LinkedIn, not like on the actual application and stuff like that. And it was kind of sketchy. It was like, yeah, send us your like name and social and stuff. And like, oh, my God. But like we're in such a crazy time right now that people there's a lot of people, you know, that have been laid off because of the current state of things. And that would probably not think twice they'd be like oh okay cool like it's another job application and one of the phishing simulations that that i did for our our internal team uh security team was that we sent a fake linkedin uh like blog post by our CISO to 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 the members of the team and and a good portion of people clicked on it because it's 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 common for our CISO to post blogs on, on LinkedIn. So, and people share that stuff. 
So we basically just crafted something that looked just like that. And uh, I'm not going to cite the number, but a good ch chunk of our cyber team clicked on it. Cite the number, Chan. Give us the hard data. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> now, the best one I ever saw was uh, it was Fancy Bear's one where um, they would, uh, they would um, send an OAuth application for your Gmail account. And then they would send you the link to approve the OAuth application. And when you approve OAuth, they asked you to sign in to Gmail. And then they framed it as uh, an email uh, spoofing Gmail that said, because um, uh, Gmail gives out these uh, infrequent security checks where mm. you have to like just retype your password or something. And the form to uh, approve an OAuth and to retype your password is basically the same. So they amassed it as a login link. And then you click the link and it takes you to the OAuth page, which is still on gmail.com. And it's still a Gmail login and it's like actually a legitimate Gmail login. And then you type your password and then it grants them access to your account. And like that one, I was like, if I'd been sent that, I would have been gone. Like <laughs> the only reason I understand this is because someone wrote it up in a in a um, investigation. Like if I'd received this genuinely, I would have fucking clicked it. Yeah. I mean... You know, this is off topic and maybe for another episode, but like um, password managers, it is my weakest link. It is my destruction and end all be all because it is all there. Like it, it went from, you know, seven years ago, you used to remember some passwords to now it's like, I remember that password and everything else is randomly generated, but it doesn't matter how many characters it is or how long it is. It's fucked. And, and like, I don't know. I, like, I have no insight into their corporation and their workings of like, how secure is this? Because once I get that, that's my life. That is everything, and I'd be, I'd be hosed. I think that's why oh. the the password uh, recovery or reset process, how strong that is, is important as well. Because I, it's it's not realistic for you to remember all your passwords and and sometimes things get out of sync with the password managers but i think as long as there's a secure way of getting your password reset i i think that's that's more important than the password manager i i feel like i i think password resets are just a huge weakness like some of the ways they're implemented because um there was one uh i can't remember what side it was it was an email provider it might have actually been gmail and um in order to enable 2fa you had to give your mobile number, even if you were using the uh, the the GAuth or whatever it's called now, like the mobile version. You still had to give them your mobile number to enable 2FA, which made no sense. But for whatever reason, they requested it. And then when you gave them your mobile number, they would put it as the reset device for your account. So if you ever needed to reset your password, uh, they would text you a code. You click the code, and your password's reset. And that would actually bypass uh, the the 2FA. Or if you were using SMS 2FA, the code would come to the same phone as the password reset. So then what people were doing was they were just SIM swapping the numbers. And now you can reset their password and get the 2FA code. And it's like, That's now weird. your account has gone from two-factor auth to zero-factor auth. It's like completely useless. I, I've been a big fan of, but you guys can tell me if it doesn't work, but like, there need to be physical two-factor authentications outside of your phone. Get get that fob, have it wherever you are, no matter where you are, because with a, a remote working kind of world, it, it should be a thing because it, it works so well. But is it hackable? Is it is it is it indestructible? What is it? 
The problem with the fobs is a lot of them don't support multi-auth. So it's like you're getting a fob for every account. And like who's going to pay for like 50 fucking like auth fobs for like, uh, like it just a company it will. scalable. A company will. Like they will, <laughs> they will fucking dish out some cash to try and get some sort of, you know, reasonable security and safety. But yeah, it's it's like, you know, I think it's falling apart. Will, but like social media providers and like free email providers, there's just no money in it. Like they're going to make you buy them. Well, they also want like, the barrier think, to be low. They want ease of use. Going back to, I think we talked about yeah. like it's let, things that are easy to use will tend to be less secure until someone figures out a solution that is more transparent. Yeah, I'm 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 stuck on Everything to auth is on my singular. I don't know. I don't. Maybe I don't want to say this. And you're <laughs> too late. You said it. <laughs> get me. Get me destroyed. But it's it's just um, you know, it just seems there's every single opportunity to take advantage of how I do my day to day, and and I don't know that we're paying anyone to think far enough ahead, or there's no budget, or you know, as as everything, it takes a while to implement. Well, I think there's a lot there's a lot of investment in this space because I've seen some pretty crafty technologies that try to make it as transparent as possible through uh, user behavior patterns or um, how someone even types in their password because the way you type it's like a it's like a you're like the way you walk like they have like gate analyzers where when you walk and on video they can analyze tell that's you based on how you how what your footsteps and how you walk they have similar technology for how you type. So I think there are interesting um, ideas that people have out there. They don't necessarily become mainstream because of implementation challenges or it doesn't work in every use case. But I think people are coming, trying to come up with creative ways of making it transparent. Well, uh, I think there are a bunch of banks who are like essentially fingerprinting like everything they can about your computer to as sure as you. And then someone found the script on the website and was like, my bank is tracking me there. They're spying on me. And then they just went nuts. And then you've got this issue of like, yeah, you can uh, identify someone by the way they type or the way they walk. But then you have this privacy crowd who is just going to start screaming at that. Well, I think that maybe it's about opting in. Like people get to opt in. Do you want the convenience or not? But at the same time, companies don't want to advertise what they're opting in because they don't want to tip the bad guys off on what 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 uh, attributes they're looking at or what are they analyzing to, to to authorize someone i mean my opinion on that trend is is, is that's entirely horseshit that's bullshit because that's like that's the same as a eula agreement here's your tick box here's my accept i don't know what the fuck <laughs> i just agreed to but here you go it's like you know no one's gonna dive into the fine details of what did i just give access to it's do I need to give you access to have? But there'll be uh, that, know, there'll, there'll be one on my phone. There'll be one, uh, you know, <laughs> Twitter lawyer who reads the EULA and freaks out and makes all these posts and makes a lot of noise. That, that's what it all. Yeah. That's what it takes. Just one person who thinks they're a lawyer on Twitter. Twitter lawyer is my favorite. That's 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 the whole thing of these EULAs is that it only stands up so long until you hire a lawyer to fight for you. It's like yeah, it's it's it's. It's garbage. It's well, don't nuts. you know everyone yeah. nowadays is a lawyer? I have so many Fuck good Twitter lawyer know. stories. <laughs> One... We should just have a whole podcast on your Twitter lawyer. Can yeah. we have a podcast where we go through your DMs, please? Oh, God. 
No, but there was one who was, he was actually genuinely a lawyer. And as a branch of law theory, well, I say it as a branch of law theory, it's like anti-vax of lawyering. It's this belief that uh, it's called sovereign citizen law. And it's the belief that every uh, citizen is their own sovereign nation. And therefore, uh, unless it's like murder or something, there are no crimes. Like if you commit, uh, if there are no victims of the crime, it's not a crime. And he was telling me how, well, technically there were no direct uh, victims of the crimes I committed, like the ones I got charged for. And uh, because the hacking is against the government, what I did was technically legal. And then by pleading guilty, I'm an idiot. And he was like, really, you shouldn't have pleaded guilty. And then you should have told them you're a sovereign citizen and therefore their laws do not apply to you. And I was like, this guy is actually a lawyer, like with a law degree. Does he win cases? And he is telling, he is getting, no, he, like you can't win a case with that logic. No. The logic of uh. the law doesn't apply to me is like. No, my brother, so my brother's but, in law enforcement and like he has all kinds of stories. Like you go to arrest them for something that they're clearly blatantly doing that is like hurting other people, like beating the crap out of someone. And they're just like, I'm a sovereign citizen, and you can't arrest me. And he's like. <laughs> like what does that fucking work no that's <laughs> he's like i'm going to anyway and they're like you can't i'm not a citizen so crazy the only people immune to law is rich people and you know what you hire a good enough lawyer you can get out of man isn't that the truth i mean i wish i could have gotten out of my case by being like hey your laws don't apply to me because i say they don't <laughs> and they're like okay fine you can go can you imagine <laughs> like in, in the middle of handcuffing you're like wait a minute you're a sovereign citizen oh I'm- <laughs> never mind <laughs> <laughs> sorry sir oh. But like he was not just criticizing my decision to plead guilty. He was criticizing my lawyers for like the way they defended me. They're like, if they were smart, they would have known you're a sovereign citizen. I'm just like, oh my God. I want to know if he's won any cases. Um, I think that's all we've got uh, for today. We've probably done about an hour and a half worth of content. Um, thank you for joining us again. I uh, I did take in a few of your suggestions. Some people mentioned the lighting. So um I don't think you can see it, but I actually have light panels now, which are facing uh, both of the walls. Um, Tran has uh, taken your advice very far and got an entire new apartment with a professional recording setup. And um, we did get our fourth guest as recommended. So um, thank you all. And I hope you keep listening. Now get the fuck out. <laughs> <laughs> Will you please, ah, but I please love you. leave that on there.